Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Payments Podium. I'm Kevin Olson, the payments professor, and I'm so glad to be able to bring you a spectacular topic in electronic payments today. What's that? Oh, we're going to talk about web debit authorizations. How many of you just went, web what? Web debit authorizations? Yeah, it's going to be all about web debit authorizations. As you know, there's been a lot of talk because we've had a rules pass with ACH and web debit authorizations that's requiring some changes in the industry. Some of you may be going, what do I need to do? What needs to happen? Why is this even happening? Well, to make it easier to understand, I have invited on the Payments Podium, Dave Keene and Jane Keller from Microbuild. They've got a solution that solves for web authorizations. I've been working with them here recently, and I was like, whoa, you know what we need to do? We need to get you guys on the payments podium to help everybody else understand what's happening in the world of web debit authorization. So, Jane, Dave, welcome to the payments podium. Thanks, Kevin. Nice to be here with you. Thank you. You're quite welcome. All right, let's get this started. Now, the format you all know, the listeners out there know, and just to remind Jane and Dave, is we always talk about the past, the present, and the possibilities of what's happening on our chosen topic within electronic payments. Today, it's web debit authorizations. And Jane, Dave, can you help fill us in what got us to here we are now? We're actually talking about web debit authorizations because webs are not new. Web debits are not new. Web debits have been around for a long time within ACH processing. Why is it now, what led to the point that you need to do more or more has to be in place? Can you help enlighten us of what got us to this point or what was happening with web debits that this is where we're at now? Yeah, Kevin, let me introduce a friend of ours named Nacha. Uh, NACHA is a not-for-profit organization, and they manage the development, administration, and all the other fun governance stuff uh, for the ACH network. And they're the ones that created the web debit rule. And simply put, uh, web debits have been just skyrocketing in volume throughout the industries as technology takes over. And uh, the rule is designed to combat fraud for ACH transactions over the Internet. So are you basically saying there was a lot of fraud involving web debits and that that's what caused, hey, Nacha says, because I know Nacha, our friend Nacha, uh, that's a great way to put it. Nacha says, you know, they or Nacha's job really is better to put it, is to protect the network. That's one of their key things that they do is they provide the rules, they oversee the network, and they protect the network. So would you say that historically or in the past we've seen a lot of fraud that was associated with web debits and that's what caused them to have to create a new rule? That's correct, but there's actually two kinds of uh, fraud, friendly fraud and intentional fraud. And we see them both in web debits because it is the consumer or the business owner that is entering their own um, transaction information. So they will go on a, a web interface, enter the bank routing number, enter the account number, and they make friendly mistakes. 
they may not include their leading zeros. They may include the check number. So this rule is designed to not only protect against that and reduce friendly fraud, accidental mistakes, but also help identify that that person entering that banking information is the authorized person that can uh, initiate a debit. I love that you said friendly fraud versus intentional fraud. Uh, because people tend to overlook that. When people just hear fraud, they always think, oh, it's somebody on the internet that I don't know that's stealing my money. And the way you put mm -hmm. it is friendly fraud is it can be somebody makes a mistake. It's not intentionally. They're not trying to steal money, but they keyed something in incorrectly, and that caused the fraud. So if I'm hearing you correctly, that, that's part of what caused this is web debits, they're a great mechanism for being able to work with a mobile device. They're a great mechanism for being able to use the internet and make use of the ACH and have a very low cost option compared to other payment channels at least, but a low cost option for being able to move money electronically. And the volume of fraud went up because of friendly fraud, but would you say some of it was also the intentional fraud and where that played into it. Absolutely, and that's why this new rule requires some kind of validation of the account owner. Okay, look, look. Yeah, yeah, that's Kevin, the Kevin, you brought up the, yeah, yeah, Kevin, you brought up the, uh, the low cost option of using ACH, and, and how that relates to the web debit is whenever, uh, whether it's friendly or, or, or unfriendly, intentional, um, you, the result is an account not found returned by the bank. And several of our large clients, uh, insurance companies, utilities, are telling us that it takes a human resource to resolve an account not found. And the time it takes uh, to resolve it one way or another is typically a cost of between $25 and $35 in, in resources. So that's, that's a real big um, impetus for, uh, uh, for having the, this web debit rule out there to limit those up front. Well, you know what, what we're in the history, that actually brings up a great point too, Dave. I know that it is expensive whenever humans have to get involved in the dispute resolution process. I also tell people it's why you, you, could, you always have a job because when there is the dispute resolution process. And I know one of the other issues we saw back in like 2013, 2014, was the proof of authorization and what equals a proof of authorization with web debits. And I think that was part of what started getting us the ball rolling on requiring even more rules and having things that are in place with web, which already has a lot more than just say your basic PPD or a CIE type transaction in comparison to at least the other SEC codes. Would you agree that, that that part of that, you know, where we had to say what equals a proof of authorization, the fact that the web is anonymous in its essence in some cases, that the also then the rise in the fraud, that's what caused NACHA to say we've got to do something or, and it's not just NACHA, really it's the industry to get together with NACHA and say we've got to do something. Yeah, you're right. I it, think it, that's right on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the industry is real is real strong in turning to NACHA, mm -hmm. and over the years, NACHA has done a, a tremendous job of of listening, and this is probably one of the one of the big ones that they're that they're concerned about. Uh, 
so many of the uh, um, web debits uh, are, are done intentional fraud. People are, if they're not making up account numbers, they're stealing them. And I think it's the theft of account number information that's probably, I don't know this as a fact, but I'll, I'll say probably one of the biggest contributors to we've got to fix this problem. I, I got to agree. I mean, and, and, you know, let's go ahead and let's jump to currently where we are because currently or what's already been in the rules for a while with web debit entries, there is the commercially reasonable fraudulent uh, detection systems requirement that has got to be in there that they've got to be doing some screening for fraud. So that's something that, you know, kind of transitions us from the past. It's been there for a while. It's a requirement everybody's supposed to be fulfilling to where we are now, to where now we have this new rule. And, you know, before I go any further, would one of you want to just explain a little bit more of exactly what this new rule is going to require? Yeah, I'll t I'm happy to take that one. The, the rule that re requires the use of, I'm going to use my air quotes here, uh, commercially uh, reasonable fraudulent transaction detection system. Uh, while that is a service that Microbuilt provides, we can talk a little bit about that later on. Um, it's required for the first time a web ACH debit is processed for an account number. Uh, it's it's pretty straightforward. Once you once you process it or you have it verified through some sort of uh, commercially reasonable uh, system, um, then it's and it comes back and then you use it and it comes back as clean. Uh, then you've got a, a good path going forward. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not rocket science. It's real simple. Um, it takes effect March nineteenth of twenty twenty one. I know that's a future topic for you, but it's semi pertinent here. So that, that kind of sums up the, uh, the rep debit rule and what it does. You, you know what? Though? It is in the future. March 19th, 2021. That's uh, less than a year away, but it's going to have an impact on people. And I, I believe as, you know, as a fintech, as, as a leader in the industry and providing services, you're probably seeing that too. What is that impact? What are the potential impacts that you're seeing on your clients, your customers, the people that are using the web debit authorizations that they're having to scramble around or plan for, have projects for, or put in place so that they're prepared? Yeah, we're, we're actually pretty busy these days. We're getting a lot of uh, uh, contacts uh, that we know, contacts that see us at the NACHA conferences or the, mm -hmm. the uh, Third Party Payment Processor Association conferences um, that are coming to us saying, you know what, it's time for us to, to get this done uh, and uh, we've, got to, we've got to get our developers working on it. So when March 19th rolls around, we're good to go. Everybody wants to get, get it done before the end of the year, which I think is one of the, the smartest things going on out there right now. Yeah, get it done as soon as possible so that they're in compliance, right? Go ahead, Jane. What we are seeing are, are two really different types of um, companies coming to us. One is a utility or government or cable that although the current web rule says you have to reasonably check for fraud, the new rule explicitly says when you check, account validation has to be part of it. So those people, those companies that take 
millions of web transactions a year have only ever validated it by saying, hey, I know that bank routing number is correct. Mm -hmm. Now they are required to do the account validation part and they've never done it before. Their overall return rate is a half a percent. They were never uh, had a compelling reason to do it and they're being required to. So you talk to a, a, a you know an established uh, utility or government agency, and this scares them. They don't know what do I need to do and how do I do it. So fortunately, they're starting early. That's good. That's the good to second, hear. Yeah, the second type that we are hearing from have a return problem, and they know they're going to be forced to do this. Uh, they may be bumping up against already the nat notch of thresholds on unauthorized um, or um, account type of returns. And so they know, I have to do it anyway. It'll help me now. Um, let's get it done as soon as possible. And Dave, I think that's the two types that we are seeing coming to us right now. So it you're sounds right. almost like you're saying you've got the one type is, why do I got to do this? I'm not a problem. Then you got the other type. My hair's on fire. Oh, my gosh. We're probably why this rule was created. Can you help us? Exactly. Well put, Kevin. Well put. <laughs> now, one of the things you said in that, too, and I know what's key to the rule is I used to teach so many classes on it. A lot of the listeners have probably been in so many workshops or webinars and said, Kevin, you told us in practicing for the AP and building our processes and procedures, all we had to do was make sure it was a valid routing number. And in that validation of the routing number, we just had to say it passes the modulus 10 algorithm. That's it. Not that it actually equals up to a bank or a credit union, just that it's yes. a valid Yeah, they were checking number. the check digit. Right. Mm -hmm. So now you're saying account validation? Well, can you tell us a little, what's account validation really mean? I mean, what do you got to go do? That's exactly what we are hearing. And um, we are providing in our account validation product, not only a check that the bank routing number is a correct U.S. bank routing number, not just the check digit check. We're looking at the structure of the account and saying, yes, this matches what this financial institution or credit union issues in the structure. And then we go look at what do we know about this account? Does it have unpaid returns? And if so, how much? Has it been reported closed by the financial institution? Or have we seen returns for RO2 account closed? Is, have we seen transactions on this account that the bank marked as account not found or invalid account? Uh, the last piece that you need to check to qualify for account validation is, does the name that you have associated with the account match the name that is associated with the account in the database you're checking? So you send a transaction to be um, to um, qualify on this web debit rule, you're going to send a bank routing number, account number, and the name that you have associated. Uh, our product will look at that, 
do the checking on the bank routing number, do the checking on the uh, structure of the account, look for positive and negative history. What do we know about this account? But then we say, hey, you gave me a name of Jane Smith. And the name associated in our database is Jane Smith or is Robert Anderson. <laughs> and we'll tell you the names associated and give you a flag that says it matches or it doesn't. And Jane, that do qualifies it as a account validation. Okay. Jane, we do this all in about a second and a, and a half, usually less. It's real time. It's through a REST API. And it's it's very very smooth and quick. Wow, that is rather quick. Now now that's the way you're doing it, and I love hearing how much detail you're going into about how you are making sure. Hey, this routing number equals a known bank or a known credit union. That you're looking to see what's historically happened to this. It sounds actually though like you're going above and beyond because if I understand correctly, the rule does not require to validate ownership of the account. The rule also doesn't say this is the method that has to be done, that it's really you get to choose as long as you meet the requirements of doing an account validation that the data is correct, the method that you want to do. And by you, I mean the originators or the financial institutions that are out there offering these services or any other uh, fintechs or providers that are out there offering the services. But uh, I, I don't know of anything that says you got to validate the ownership nor that you have to actually do it a specific way. Is that what you've seen too? That's exactly yeah. right. Uh, we, as, as, a, as a CRA, Microbuilt is a, uh, a consumer reporting agency. We have all this data and we just decided it makes sense since we can do it in just over a second. Let's tell them everything we know. A lot of companies will take that ancillary data and use it for other uh, uh, risk um uh, in risk uh, policy regulate risk policy uh, um, processes, I should say, uh, of their own. So we've got the data. So we're going we're going ahead and sending it out. Well, you know, another great question just comes right to that. You made me realize something in reading through this rule because being the payments geek I am, I read about all these rules that are coming out. And I know, Jane, you also mentioned too that the cable company who's been doing this for a while, very low returns. If we take that cable company with very low returns, been doing this for a while, for their already existing accounts, the ones they've already sent, the ones they've been sending for years, do they now have to go in and do a validation on all of those existing transactions that they've already been processing? No, it is the first time you see that ABA and account number. So the first time you see that customer use their banking account to pay their cable, or if they change their banking account to pay their bill. Okay, so if there's a change or it's the first time that it's used, then the validation of some sort's got to go through. So uh, that's great. And again, it does sound like you really are going above and beyond as far as how it's being done. There are other methods for those of you who are listening that are available. Uh, I, I personally, I'm a big fan of the Microbuilt solution, and that's why I brought them on the show because I wanted to be able to talk about, hey, here is the level to which you could go to be able to have a higher level of confidence in the information. The fact that they're able to do it so fast as well. But uh, could you talk to some of the other methods that are out there, like maybe even just the microtransaction verification or something like that? 
Yeah, Jane, why don't you take the microtransaction verification and I'll take the uh, um, the uh, pre, uh, the uh, bank. pre note, the pre note. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you are exactly correct. There are other methods. One of them is a macro deposit, a micro deposit, and that method is the bank will send usually a couple of credits totaling less than 10 cents and a debit totaling less than 10 cents to that consumer business account and that consumer or business owner has to verify, yes, I saw one credit for two cents, I saw another credit for five cents, and I saw a debit for three cents. And when they do that, obviously, it's very evident that they know that account. It's a good account because transactions process through it. The disadvantages is people drop out. They don't respond back and say, yes, I've seen it. It's not frictionless to the account holder. I would even argue if the account is compromised and you are working directly with an intentional fraudster and the account's compromised, they can also verify that information. You're correct. That's a good point. So I'm not a big fan of that method. Again, I'm trying to just make sure everybody listening that you get to hear the different options that are out there. And Dave, you mentioned pre-note. Uh, can, what are your feelings on using the pre-note process for this? Yeah. Well, a pre-note is a $0 ACH uh, transaction. And the problem with a pre-note is uh, over the years, a lot of the banks, there's no published numbers on who, who is a good pre-note processor and who just ignores them. But a lot of the major banks in particular um, don't respond back to a $0 transaction. They've got better things to do. Um, getting them to change their, uh, their, uh, their ways is a major uh, IT project. I'm sure it's not on, uh, on their radars to do out of the goodness of their, of their hearts. Uh, so, so pre-notes, and, and of course, neither the, uh, uh, the, the uh, macro deposits, micro deposits, nor the pre-note are in real time, as in the account validation services. Yeah, and and so pre-notes, pre go ahead. Is, it's designed for if you don't get an answer, that means it's good. So when Dave said not all banks answer, you assume it's good when it's not. Thank you for that clarification, Jane. That's key. But you don't always want the silence, though. I get that in this case, silence is golden, but I kind of want to know in this situation. Because personally, I'm a big fan of prenotes. I will tell people, especially new to origination, new to origination, not, you know, hey, I've been doing this for years, uncomfortable, but especially those new to the origination, you make use of the prenote. You're adding a payroll, make use of the prenote. You're adding new other types of transactions, make use of the prenote. But if it's, it's got to go now, I don't see the prenote working. I don't even see the micro deposit working. Again, these are the opinions of the payments professor folks, not necessarily those of Vsoft, but the payments professor just doesn't believe that those solutions work because they take too much time. And as a business owner myself, I don't want to wait a couple of days for somebody to change their mind about making an online purchase from me. I want them 
to be able to have that capability right away. And, and again, this isn't meant to be a sales pitch for Microbuilt, but I brought them on because they have a solution that is looking at multiple areas and doing it in, would you say a second and a half versus pre-notes that are going to take a day or two? Micro deposits that are going to take a day or two and require the end user to get involved as well. That's absolutely right. In fact, we've, we've got large customers that process uh, a couple a couple hundred transactions uh, every few minutes. Uh, so they, uh, you know, we've got the capacity to handle it real, uh, real fast, real time, real big. All right. Well, okay. Again, everybody listening, um, that's what's happening right now. You're going to be required to do the comply with the rule. You won't have to check any of your existing transactions. You've got until next year to, you know, get everything in place. You, March 19th, 2021 is when the rule actually takes place. There are multiple options out there for being able to solve for this issue. And I want to make that clear. There are multiple vendors that are out there. If you need to be put in touch with Microbuilt, you can always contact the payments professor and I'll definitely get you in touch with them to be able to uh, get them in touch with you if you're looking for a solution for it or want to know more. But now at this part of the podcast, listeners, you know, this is where let's challenge our experts and let's take them, you know, think what's happening in the future. We've got web debits that they, you know, started off where it was just web debits, grew into web credits, which are totally different transactions. I don't even know why they really use that same SEC code. Well, actually I do, but it never really made sense to me. But we had the commercially reasonable fraudulent detection systems were in place. We now have the account validation. Where do you see the future of web debits going? Where do you see that, hey, we're gonna have this? Now, and I'd also challenge you, as you're thinking of what's the future of web debits gonna look like? What's the future of requirements for originators and businesses and banks and credit unions using web debits to look like? Let's take into consideration COVID-19 too. Let's take into consideration that we have been through a pandemic to where we are now seeing more cashless, contactless payments than ever before, or at least the demand for them more than ever before. So Jane, Dave, I'd love to hear both of your opinions. What does the future of web debits look like? What you know, new rules might be coming? What's the use cases, anything like that? If you look into the crystal ball of payments, what do you see happening? Well, I think I think that web debits are going to set the course for for uh, the other uh, SEC standard electronic uh, classification codes um, for different types of payments. Uh, if this is successful and they can actually we can actually uh, see see a reduction in fraudulent transactions, um, and as technology becomes more and more pervasive. Um, it's either going to spread to the other uh, standard entry class codes or uh, new entry uh, new, new standard entry class codes will be created so we'll have to we'll have to see on that but it's it's definitely going to affect the future of of ACH uh, in total okay I love that answer yeah. if we do see it being successful we could potentially see this rule apply to other SEC codes because it could help control the fraud all right, Jane, what do you think? I agree. In fact, I was shocked they didn't roll this out for Tell at the same time mm -hmm. because they have these same issues on a Tell transaction. And the next 
SEC codes they're going to look at is PPD and CCD, only because they have a lot of fraud in there, too. Now, I don't see them doing it for POP or ARC or back office conversion, but uh, I do see them expanding it to anything that the consumer's not present when it happens. Okay. Now we're excellent. sounding like a couple. We're sounding like a couple of nerds. You can go out and Google standard entry class codes, <laughs> and, and get a definition for all those things Jane was talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. Or you can also go to the Payments Professor YouTube channel, where we have videos for almost every SAC code to help you explain where they use, what they use, or even just what an SEC code is, folks. I, I hope you got as much out of this session as I did. I hope you feel a little bit comfortable or more comfortable now with the new web debit authorization rule, what's going to be required of you. And before we close everything out, I do want to give Jane and Dave, you know, huge kudos for being here, but also is there any closing comments, uh, anything you want to say as we're closing off the payments podium here that our listeners need to be aware of that they should be paying attention to so that if there's, you know, confusion on what this rule means, just remember at least this one thing. What, what would you tell them? For the people that have never done this before, if you get an answer from any provider that makes you make the decision you're not going to accept this web debit, that consumer must have somewhere they can get a hold of to cure it, to say why. Um, and when Dave is saying we provide that service for you, that's one thing to consider. You're going to have to provide that consumer with a resource to cure why you didn't take that web debit. Okay, so you're going to have to do it is what it's coming down to. So just be prepared for it. Uh, again, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Jane, for being on the show. The rest of you out there, I hope you enjoyed this. As you know, if there are any other topics that you're curious about, you're wanting to know more about, you would love for maybe somebody to be on the show or have a suggestion beyond just a topic, but somebody who wants to be on the show. Maybe you're a listener who would like to take the payments podium and be able to voice what you think or what you have to say when it comes to electronic payments. Well, you all know, you can reach me, Kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. I'm here to serve and to help you. And we do this in a way that we try to make payments fun, educational, entertaining, and engaging. I'm the Payments Professor, and class is dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.